I'd ask you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, there should be a Bible underneath your chair. You're sitting in there close to you if you don't have a Bible with you. But either way, please stand with us this morning if you're able and the honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 18, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Verse 13, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray together again. Father, we pray that you'd reveal the truth of what this word means. We could get a glimpse of your greatness and who you are and, and that you would make us humble, humble like children. Do what you command in the scripture. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. I was walking by the nursery this morning and I observed a little bit of rebellion. We have arrogant babies in our nursery. Did you know that? Why, Miss Patty and Miss Mandy and Mr. Gary in there were just telling me how rebellious those babies were this morning, jumping up on the seats and standing on the chairs and saying, I'm number one. I'm the best baby in here. You should have saw Jude Griffith. We'll pick on the Griffith kids this morning. Bunch of arrogant babies in that nursery. Well, of course, I'm just kidding about that. In fact, when you observe a child, a little tiny child, it's hard to see arrogance and the desire to be, I don't know, have status. To be number one, to be self-centered, you start seeing that pretty early. 
But I don't see any arrogant babies in our nursery. But we do have some ambitious, prideful people in the church. Not in just this church, in every church. There are people that call themselves disciples that are arrogant, ambitious, and prideful people and a desire to be great. Preoccupied with being great. I'll ask you this question this morning. It gets right to the heart of the matter. Are you preoccupied with your status? Are you preoccupied with being great? Are you preoccupied with success? With being the greatest Sunday school teacher, better than that teacher, or, or being better than this or better than that, or what people think of you? Does that occupy your mind? This shouldn't be true of Jesus' disciples, amen? It shouldn't be true of us that we would be preoccupied with our status or our greatness or our desire to be number one or, to, or be least better than that person sitting over there. Jesus, in this passage of scripture, the disciples come up to Jesus and, and of course they ask him the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't that ridiculous? That they would ask this? I mean, they're talking to the greatest. They're talking to Jesus, asking him who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And just think about what they've just witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration. His greatness being shown before them. His humanity being peeled back to reveal the greatness and deity of the Son of God. The voice they hear, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And not much later, not all the disciples were up there, three were anyway. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They just heard Jesus tell a story about, or not really a story, but a parable when he was asked about paying the temple tax there in Matthew chapter 17. And he said, well, Peter, the sons don't have to pay the tax. He was telling Peter, no, I'm not obligated to pay the temple tax because I'm the son of God. And Peter, if you're my follower, you're a son of God as well and you don't have to pay the temple tax either. Yet, what do we see? First word of verse 27 of chapter 17. However, however, God... The son pays the temple tax because he's came to seek and to save that's your loss. He does not desire to offend those needlessly so that they might hear and witness and see the kingdom of God that has come in himself. And so he humbles himself. The greatest humbles himself. The disciples hear this. Peter observed this. And just and this, look what it says in chapter 18, verse 1. The first three words. At that time, he just shows, shows how great he is and he's gonna to go to the cross, he says earlier in the same passage of scripture for one of the, uh, another repetition of, hey, the son of man, the greatest, the son of man, the son of God, he's gonna to go to the cross. He's gonna to go to Jerusalem. And three days later, he's gonna rise again. And they're troubled by it. And he's just told them that even though I'm not obligated to pay the temple tax, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to pay it for the sake of these, for the good of these. And at that time, at the same moment, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's preoccupying their minds. It's as if they don't hear what he's saying. They're not, they've not really seen what they've observed. Who's the greatest, Jesus? So Jesus' object lesson 
is in verse 2. What does he do in verse 2? He brings in a child. Some, some, some speculate that it could have been one of Peter's children. And I don't know how in the world they speculate that. But nevertheless, it was a child. Presumably a young child. Probably not a teenager. Don't think that would have illustrated quite what he wanted to illustrate here. Brings in a young child, maybe a baby, maybe a toddler. Puts him in the midst. Says, you want to be, you want to go to the kingdom of heaven? You want to be great? Be like that. And notice he says, be like that. Like is an important word in that verse. In fact, he says, be humble like that child. So really, if we're going to get right to it, the main point this morning, this passage of scripture that we're looking at, if we just want to look at these verses and say, God, what do you have for us this morning, God? What do you want, us, what do you want to reveal about us today? And then the lesson for us to, to hear from God this morning in his word is this. Turn, repent. Turn from your desire to be number one in the eyes of men and become humble like a child in the eyes of God. Isn't that what he says in verse 3? Look at verse 3. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, verse 4, like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that's it. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Jesus is confronting a tendency in the disciples, a very glaring tendency in them and in us as well, to be concerned and preoccupied with our status and our greatness about being the best mom or the, about being the best Sunday school teacher or about being the best pastor or about being the best this or about the best that. And he's saying turn from this desire to be number one in the eyes of men and become humble like a child in the eyes of God. So what I want to share with you from the passage of Scripture are three reasons to turn. Three reasons to turn from this desire to be great in the eyes of men. Number one, God chooses the little ones to enter the kingdom. One of the reasons to turn from your desire to be great in the eyes of men and to become humble like a child is God chooses the little ones to enter the kingdom. So we're talking about eternity here. We're talking about your soul being at stake. This is not something you should tune out on. God chooses the little ones to enter the kingdom. Jesus takes this little one, he chooses this little one right here as an illustration of humility. Now some would say when they get around your little toddler or your little baby perhaps they would say, "Oh, that little one is so sweet. I know our Cubby's teachers love to be in the class. I like going down in that class. I was in there that class week before last or the first night they started and was interacting with the kids and I saw some of the little ones like Finley Kite and, and uh, Jonas and, and, and Benjamin and some others coming in there for the first time. They'd finally got to start cubbies and it was so cute to watch them. And sometimes we may have been around other people's little ones and notice other people is important. Other people's little ones and we may say, that little one is so sweet. And there's truth to that but the mom or dad may be thinking, but you're not with them all day. And there's definitely truth to that. And the reason I say that is this. Jesus is not saying this little child that he puts in the middle right there, he's not saying that that child is sinless. 
He's not saying become like this child because it doesn't have a sin nature, because it's sinless. Why, why is he using the little child? He's saying in contrast to your preoccupation about, wanting, about status and about being great, this child's not preoccupied with that. We can just observe a little tiny child, a toddler. That's the reason I said I couldn't, couldn't use a teenager. He didn't use a teenager here because it don't take us long before we start seeing those innate desires to be great and to be independent and to come up with our own rules and do our own thing. It don't take very long for that to be manifest in one's life. But here the little child is completely just observing is completely dependent upon its parents. If the mom or dad walks away, a lot of times what the little child will do, mom, dad. Or you're holding them, saying, oh, your little, your little baby's so cute. But then daddy comes around and the baby's like, or mommy reaching for mom. They know who's going to take care of them. So let's clarification about the little ones right here, verse six, just so you'll see that as Jesus continues talking in this passage of scripture, he's not saying that babies and children are the ones that go to heaven. That, he's not saying that. He's saying we must become like children. We must have that kind of heart attitude. So in verse six, he says this, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So what's he talking about? He's talking about somebody that believes in Jesus, that trusts in him. This is somebody that depends upon Jesus, that relies upon Jesus, that's a true follower of Jesus. So what he's saying is the ones that enter the kingdom of God are people that believe in Jesus, that trust in Jesus, that depend and rely upon Christ. Those are the little ones. So this is not a sermon about protecting kids, all right, even though that's an important topic. Or, or, or our emotional affection for little babies in the nursery, although that's great. This is a sermon about how God loves his little ones who are those who are followers of Jesus Christ. That's how God sees us. No matter what age you are, if you're born again, you're into the kingdom of God, you're one of his little ones. And that's supposed to how we're, that's supposed, that's supposed to how, that's how we're supposed to see one another as his little ones and treat one another as his little ones. Why are we turned off to arrogant athletes? You ever see the arrogant athletes? I've seen a lot on just in recent days on the NFL stuff about guys not getting their contract and whining about why they're not getting paid $30 million instead of $27 million. Why are we turned off? Because some of the athletes, and it's not just athletes, but, but some, they think they're better than others, that the rules don't apply. They're indispensable to their team, they think. They're self-sufficient. They're They're entitled. And God will have nothing of that when it comes to us spiritually. To think that we're entitled to the kingdom of God, to think that the rules don't apply to us, it applies to them, but not to us, that we're an exception, he'll have nothing of it. 
To think that we're so valuable in and of ourselves that we can make ourselves right with God and enter the kingdom of God because we're good and we're good church members and we tithe. God will say, get that out of my face. Somebody says that, he says what? Will not enter the kingdom of God. Will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see that in the end of verse three? Will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says, you're concerned about being great disciples in the kingdom of heaven? You need to understand, unless you humble yourself, you not even enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to be primarily concerned about entering the kingdom of heaven. Because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble is what the Bible says. God will not share his glory with another. We see the illustrations of that in the Bible, don't we? In the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar is humble because he thinks he's great and has accomplished all he has by his own power in building up the nation of Babylon. And, and he's humbled and eats like an animal, a wild animal. We see the two men praying in Scripture and the Pharisee He's praying along with a sinner and the Pharisee says, I'm so glad I'm not like this man over here, this sinner over here. And the Pharisee and the sinner can, sinner can barely lift his eyes. He says, oh God, have mercy on me. And it's the latter in which the God looks upon with favor, the one who is humble of heart. The one who assesses himself not in comparison to other people saying, well, I must be greater than that person, but the one who looks up at Almighty God who is great and perfect and says, I'm a sinner. And the only way I'm gonna make it right with you and enter the kingdom of God is relying upon what you provide and not myself. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 27 through 29 makes it very clear that God does not favor and show grace to those who are proud. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians says, chapter one says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God choose the little ones to enter the kingdom? Those who, are, who have been humbled in heart, and I say have been humbled in heart because we cannot humble our hearts, God must do that. Yet there's human responsibility in that as well that we can't resolve with our finite minds. Humble yourself, but God's gotta humble you. Why does he do it? So that nobody can boast. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. He'll have no boasting in his presence. It'll not be in heaven. Thank God I'm here and Jesus died and thank God I did my part. There'll be none of that. Only praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. So God chooses little ones to enter the kingdom. And I agree with what one pastor said when it says enter the kingdom it means you were born outside the kingdom. In fact, these little babies and these little children are born outside the kingdom. That we all must be born again 
into the kingdom of God. We are not right with God. We have a sin nature that's manifest even very early. You must be born into the kingdom of God. You must trust alone in Jesus Christ and nothing else. So there's three reasons to turn from our desire to be number one in the eyes of men and become humble like a child in the eyes of God. And the first one is God chooses the little ones to enter the kingdom. Secondly, God will judge those who cause the little ones to sin. God will judge those who cause the little ones to sin. Yesterday, I, Micaiah, our middle, one of our sons, had a football game yesterday, and we were at the snake pit. You know how steep those stairs are. My legs are aching a little bit from walking back up the stairs, but I had to walk up them twice because our youngest... Titus decided he did not want to walk down those stairs. It was scared of walking down the stairs. And if you've been to the snake pit and seen walking down to the bottom, that's pretty steep-looking stairs for a little fellow to look at. So I was already at the bottom ready for kickoff and had to walk all the way back up the top to coax him into coming down to the bottom. And I was pretty frustrated with that and a little frustrated with him. I was concerned with watching the kickoff, and I didn't want to but I sure didn't want my preoccupation with, with that to cause him to stumble down the steps. And so we got down the steps after about 10 or 15 minutes <laughs> safely. If you're a child of God, you're one of his little ones. You don't, you don't want to cause the little ones to stumble. And Jesus' concern here, there's several different times. I've, I, I circled in my Bible at least three times between verses 5 and 9, the word causes. So what we see here in verses 5 through 9 is the Lord Jesus is very concerned for his disciples to understand that they not be a cause of leading a little one to sin. It's the same word scandalizo means to stumble, to be offended. God will judge those who cause the little ones to sin, and we see that in this passage of Scripture. You see, preoccupation with being great, with being number one, with being better than other people, even the context of the church family. This preoccupation and this desire will harm other believers because our actions, our words, will tend to come from a place of self-serving and sometimes without us consciously being aware of it, we will harm someone else. Notice he says in verse 5, Whoever receives one such little one in my name receives me. So if you don't receive one of these little ones, you reject him. But whoever causes one of these little ones and believe me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So in that day, when the mules, the donkeys, whatever would would grind, sometimes they'd grab a big, big, big old stone that would grind wheat and so forth up. It'd weigh several hundred pounds, and it'd say, you'd be better off, Jesus says, if you offend one of these little ones to have that big old stone wrapped around your neck and somebody go throw you in the lake. You'd be better off dead. Then to let your preoccupation with being great cause you to be careless in words you say or in actions you, you participate in that would lead one of these little ones to sin, to stumble. Case in point, the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about how he fulfills the law. And he says that we are not to 
teach contrary to his word. Matthew chapter 5, let me just flip over and read, read it to you. And verse 19 says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he says about these Pharisees and Sadducees, what's their problem? They think they're great already. They think their status is much greater than that of the crowds Jesus is preaching to on the, mount, on the mountain when he's given the Sermon on the Mount. They think their status is great. And they're preoccupied with that. And they presume that they're in the kingdom already. And he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's got to exceed that. So they're consumed, preoccupied with their greatness. And what's that lead them to doing in verse 19 in Matthew chapter 5? They relax God's law. They relax God's teaching. And Jesus, they, they say, well, to commit adultery is not to go sleep with another man's wife. And Jesus comes back later and says, I'll tell you what adultery is. You're, you're relaxing the commandment. You're, you're, you're giving the, the interpretation of that commandment an interpretation that makes you fit really well into it because you, maybe you've never done that. But he says, I'll tell you what, if you looked on a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he's telling the people, these scribes and Pharisees are by their teaching are leading you to stumble because they're making you feel like you're okay because you've never committed the act of adultery when in fact you have in your heart and you're separated from God just as much as anybody else. So with that case in point, we have to be very careful, church family, what we teach with our lips and with our lives. What I'm doing right here, right now, that I could cause you to stumble by misapplying, misinterpreting the word of God. That's the reason the Bible says not let many of you become teachers. I could cause you to stumble by not saying what I need to say, by holding back. Or by forgetting that you are his little children and just sort of beating you up with a staff rather than leading you like a shepherd. We cause others to stumble by our hypocrisy how many people say that nothing but a bunch of hypocrites at church, I can stay home and be a hypocrite. We cause others to stumble by our hypocrisy, by our acting like we love Christ and then acting a different way at other times. By the way we use our Christian freedom and liberty. Well, I'm free in Christ, so I'm going to go ahead and do this. And because of our arrogance and our desire to be great and our desire to flex how our spiritually God-given muscles and understanding of the gospel, we go ahead and engage in an activity. And a weaker brother sees that and it leads them to sin because they go ahead and do it too or it violates their conscience they do it or it leads them to further legalism themselves and we cause them to stumble because we're arrogant. Or we're with our children at home when we, we exasperate our children in contrast to what Ephesians 5 says because, because of the words coming out of our mouth. Because we want to be obeyed. 
And we want to be respected, even at the cost of sinning to get our point across. And we cause our own little ones at home to sin. I don't want to do that to my children. Any more than I want to cause Titus to fall down the steps to the snake pit. So you see, what we need to do is deal radically with any trace of pride or sin. Notice what the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 18 before I move on. In verse 7, it says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary that temptations come. So temptation's going to come. Sin's going to come. Sin is going to find a way, but just don't let it come through you. Don't be a cause. Don't be a means. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And then he goes to these commands in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Verse 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So there's a warning here that a failure to deal radically with sin in your life could lead you to hell. And Jesus is not speaking metaphorically about hell. He is about cutting your hand or your foot off. He's saying deal radically with the sin, the sin issues in your life, whatever that needs to happen. But if you're not willing to do that, you're probably, you're, you're probably on your way to hell. You're just going to go ahead and do what you want to do anyway, and you're not willing to, 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 to cut this thing off, this relationship or this, this activity, and it's causing other people to stumble, and you're arrogant and you're prideful, then you're going to go to hell. The eternal fire. Yeah, I think of uh, fallen ministers and the harm that it causes to the body of Christ when a, when a pastor falls morally. Pride goes before the fall. And in my observations, when there's been a public uh, falling of a, a pastor to immorality, um, and yours as well, it was preceded by an awful lot of pride up front, an awful lot of maybe, maybe success and greatness in the ministry, you know, and feeling like you're above things. I, sometimes that's, that's preceded that. An unwillingness, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, to poke your eye out, cut your hand off, do what you've got to do to get away from sin. So I just simply want to ask you this morning about this. What, what radical actions do you need to take that God may be speaking to you about? I mean, radical actions that you need to take so that you don't cause other people to stumble, that you don't cause his little ones to sin. And then thirdly, remember we're talking about, here's, here's what he wants us to do. We have this propensity to be obsessed and preoccupied with being great and to be concerned about our rank and our status. And he wants us to turn away from that and humble ourselves in the eyes, in the eyes of God like a child. So we've got to remember, God chooses the little children to enter the kingdom. And we've got to remember that God will judge those who cause the little ones to sin. You cause his little ones to sin, he's going to judge you. So turn. And number three, in a more positive motivation, God is faithfully watching over his little ones. God is faithfully watching over his little ones.
He tells us again in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Seems somewhat repetitive. Don't despise one of these little ones. Don't look down on somebody else that professes to be a Christian and maybe they don't seem to have as much knowledge as you or they don't look like you uh, economically. They're not on the same economic status as you are. You just think maybe you just think you're better than them. Shouldn't be favoritism in the church. Don't despise one of these little ones. There's been a, a few times when we've been out in the backyard or out in the woods somewhere with my kids and you know, and you've probably done this too, find a baby animal or a baby bird. And, and I've said to my kids, now, hold on, don't go up to it and touch it. And there's been, been at least one time I, I think I can remember where I said, look up there in a the tree up there, you see that? That's that mama bird up there. And she, she you, you start messing around with her baby right here that, that's fallen out of the nest and can't get back in or whatever, that mama bird may come down and swoop at you. That mama bird's always watching her children. She's always watching her little one. On a much greater way, the Bible teaches us right here that God is always watching his little ones. You notice what the Bible says in verse 10, the second part of it. For I tell you that in heaven there are angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Some would say that we have guardian angels, and this is the verse that they would probably use. Everybody has their own guardian angel. Some talk sometimes in a sentimental way, and I can understand why, that their loved one that's passed on is now their guardian angel. That's not true, okay? There's no such thing as guardian angels. Um, and this passage of Scripture is not saying that each person has their own personal angel looking out for them, looking up at their father. It's not saying that. David Platt kind of explains it this way. It's sort of like zone defense versus man-to-man. -man. Instead, everybody having their own angel, it's more like a zone. There's a whole bunch of angels that are, that, are, that are ready. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, these are ministering servants sent out. Praise the Lord. He loves us that much. He's got his angels on guard watching his face. And if they see, if they just waiting for the signal, go. Man, we're rescued. Amen? That's how Father loves us. It's not teaching guardian angels, but it certainly reminds us of his protection and his love and his watch care over us. But notice what the scripture says. Jesus goes on and tells this familiar story in this passage of scripture talking about the rescue of believers who have strayed. And he tells about the shepherd. He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And so what's he do when he finds that sheep? He rejoices over the sheep when he finds it. I found the one that was lost. What about the 99 that didn't go astray? I like how one person illustrated it. It's like, well, let's say a mom has some children at home and one of the children are very sick and, and, and maybe even near death and, and, the, and the child is, is, uh, is healed and, and she rejoices over that child, right? That's just what you do. It's not that you don't rejoice over the healthy children that's been there all along. You're just, you're just rejoicing in the moment of that child. That's what's happening here. This, our father is rejoicing over, just like a shepherd finding his lost sheep, he's rejoicing that this sheep has been found. So it says in the last verse, in verse 14, so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God is faithfully watching over his little ones, and that's what you see in these verses here. So turn from your self-centeredness and 
your preoccupation with greatness. God is faithfully watching over his little ones. And if you're one of his little ones, he's watching over you. He's caring for you. You see the humility of God in this passage of Scripture? This God that we sang about this morning, who has felt the nails in his hands? God eternal, humble to the grave. This is our God. He is the one that's watching and searching, and he doesn't have to do it. He's watching and searching for his sheep who have gone astray. And that's what Christ has done for us in the cross. I was telling a couple of groups this week, small groups that I meet with of guys, I brought in a stack of books, and one of them asked, uh, what's those books? And I said, oh, well, I didn't even plan to do it in the one meeting I was in, but I said, these are journals that I've kept. Journals I've kept since, and I looked in the date, since 1996. I was 23 years old in 1996. So for 24 years or whatever, I've been keeping journals. Not all the time. There's a great gap after we have our firstborn where I've not written in journals for probably three or four years. All right. But I look back at those journals this week. Uh, I don't. That's not something I go around doing. I had. I don't know if I ever read that much at them before. They've just been sitting on a shelf. Scripture verses that I've written down and about and so forth. But also just think about the way the Lord is at work in my life. And of course, I just, I just came in here in sanctuary and just wept and just cried because there were names of people I'd forgotten that God had placed in my life and I was writing about and being thankful for or praying for. And I was just reminded of this passage of Scripture, how faithful, just for myself, God has been to watch faithfully over me. How he's helped me with issues of sin I've struggled with in my life. He has proven to be faithful. He's proven to be the God that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Great is his faithfulness. This is the God we want to be faithful to and, and humble ourselves before and serve. Now, in a point of application about this before I close is uh, if God's faithfully watching over his little ones, folks, then we ought to be watching over one another. And I kind of made that point already, right? Let me ask you, how careful are you about hiring a babysitter? Do you post it on Facebook? Anybody want to watch my kid? Do you go to McDonald's and go around to the strangers and say, anybody want to watch my kid for a couple of hours? Probably not. I hope not. I have to make a phone call about you, 1-800-PHONE-CALL. <laughs> you don't do that. And God is not careless or irresponsible about who he has to watch over his little ones either. And he's called the church to watch over one another. He's called the church to watch over his little ones. So feel the weight of this calling. Not, of not only not to offend and not to cause a little one, another brother or sister to stumble because of our arrogance or our recklessness, but also feel the weight of the responsibility we are to be proactive and caring for one another as the Father does. I'm thankful to be part of a church where we have small groups and, and discipleship classes and Bible studies and Sunday school classes that meet and I hear stories all the time of people talking to me or send me a text or send me an email about how so-and-so has blessed them and prayed for them and so forth and has uplifted them. And that's why I would so encourage you, if you're not already, to be involved in a, in a Sunday school group or a small uh, discipleship class and, 
And if you're having a hard time getting plugged in, talk with me about that. Maybe we can find somebody to meet with you one-on-one. But it is such a grace to have that kind of care for the church. And I'm so thankful that many of you are engaged that way and, and sacrifice your time that way to serve the people here. We're charged to care for the church and how we use our spiritual gifts. I know my wife's small group is going through a study on spiritual gifts right now, but one way we show concern for the church is we, we use our gifting, we use our skill set, we use our time to volunteer to serve others in our church family. When someone misses church or misses your Sunday school class, you, you call them, you text them, you send them an email, you're saying, hey, what's going on? How can I pray for you? They've shared a burden in Sunday school, you follow up and send a note and have many of you witnessed that and observed that? Many of you have, and there's some here saying I've not. And there's two reasons I can think of or why somebody that attends this church would say that you don't experience that kind of care from this church. One reason is because, partly because, you're not involved in any small group discipleship, Sunday school. You, you, only, you only attend you only come to the worship service on Sunday morning and it's really hard to get to know you that way. So that's kind of on you. But the second reason is more on us. The second reason is, is because we come as a church family and we know each other so well and we see each other on Sunday morning and we say, hey, how you doing? Oh, it's good to see you. And we talk and talk and talk and this person walks by that nobody ever talks to. And this person's overlooked. And this person feels like, when the pastor's up here talking about how close we are, this person's feeling like I've never been in a place so clicky in my life. But I come because I like the singing or the preaching or I still feel like I need to come here for a while. Let that be a check on us, okay, about our intentionality to care for one another. And it works both ways. It works both ways. You see the greatness of Jesus Christ on this Mount of Transfiguration. The father says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. But then there's another mountain, Mount Calvary, where the son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you hear him say, it's finished. The way that we will humbly serve one another, the way that we will humbly seek to live in a way that doesn't cause others to stumble by the way we live our lives or the words we speak, is we, need to, we see the gospel, we see the greatness of Christ, that God eternal was humbled to the grave. That's what God did. Am I called to any less? Am I above that? Am I above carrying my cross in that way? Am I entitled? You better believe not. Listen to this song as we sing in a few moments. You listen to the words of the song as you sing the words at the same time. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those people. No list of those people I'm not like. Those people can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him. He alone can give me rest. Let the gospel be the means through which 
we humbly walk before one another and serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we have heard your word preached, that our hearts would be stirred and changed by it. And Lord, that as we spend time in your word this week, even that God, uh, you would be so gracious to remind us of who you are and your greatness and then what you have done. Lord, let us sense the, the weightiness of the call that is upon us, Lord, to live in such a way that would not cause one another to stumble or to sin. Help us to be willing to deal radically with sin in our own life that we may think nobody else knows about and is not hurting anybody else, but Lord, indeed it is. We pray that you'd convict us of those things and help us, Lord, to do what you're telling us to do, even though it's hard. Father, we pray that you would help us to be very intentional to care for one another, to not overlook one another, and certainly not to look down on one another. And Lord, we just want to thank you at the same time that you have given us a church family. I thank you for First Baptist Church. I thank you for the servants that are here, like the ladies that work with the cubbies or, or the folks that serve on the praise team or so many people that do so many things here in our church family. Father, I pray you just make us a, even a more healthier place to serve and live and worship together. And then, Lord, I pray for the ones here this morning that may not be saved. Father, I pray that they'd see that there's no list of things that they've done or not done that there's just not anything at all that they can bring before you that'll make them right with you, that's only Christ, and they would trust alone in Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I'll stand here at the front, and as we sing, you sing, you sing as well, we all sing together, and if you'd like to come and pray about anything at all or talk about your relationship with the Lord, what it means to humble yourself like a child or to be born again, man, I'd love to talk to you right now. So let's stand together and sing. Jesus' death, 
by a weary load was born by him and he alone can give me rest no separation from the world no work I do no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God, be merciful to me. And merciful in Christ alone. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Thank you all so much for being here this, with us this morning. Uh, Steve Wason is supposed to be praying. Okay, Steve, I didn't know if you were here or not. Come on up, Steve. And he's one of our deacons going to close us in prayer. And as he comes, remember, there won't be any evening service tonight. Our youth activities will still be taking place, though. And we'll have our Greater Wabash Baptist meeting in Albion, Illinois, if you'd like to come and join us there. Talk to me about it on your way out. Also, uh, on your way out this morning, if I get a chance to meet you this morning, I'd love the chance to chat with you. But even more so, if, if there's something that's going on and uh, I can pray for you about uh, you know, especially if you're not sure if, you know, if you, if you died, you'd go to heaven. I mean, why would you want to leave and not, not talk about that? I'd love to talk with you about, about that further, and, and we can set up a time to talk or even talk right now. So you be sure and seek me out or seek a believer that you know and trust that'll, that'll tell you the truth. Steve, would you close us? Let's pray. All-powerful God, it's, it's not as though you couldn't accomplish all this yourself, but you've invited us to participate in your plan. No, you've, you've commanded us to participate in your plan in sharing the gospel with others, Lord. And we're so humbled by that fact. We feel unworthy to even go forth and, and spread your word, Lord, knowing who we are inside. Lord, but you've, you've taken care of that. You've cleaned us up, Lord. You've, you've made us your sons and your daughters. Lord, we're so thankful for that. So as we go this week, let us do exactly that. Let us share your word and share it exuberantly and proudly and, and uh, humbly, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength.
Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.